0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard the term superbugs. They're bacteria that are becoming resistant to the most powerful antibiotics out there. Just last week, the Washington Post reported a drug-resistant strain of gonorrhea, a sexually transmitted disease, has been found in the United Kingdom. Now, if current antibiotics can't kill a superbug, what other treatments can? Coming up, we'll hear from a team of researchers at Yale University about how some viruses have been shown to help target drug-resistant infections. Phage therapy, as it's called, could help curb the growing problem of antibiotic resistance. We'll learn more about this treatment in just a bit. First, have you thought about the dangers of superbugs? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. And find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we wanted to know what's causing these drug-resistant infections. So, I wanted to welcome back to the show Dr. Nicholas Bennett, Division Head of Pediatric Infectious Disease and Immunology at Connecticut Children's Medical Center here in Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Bennett, welcome back to where we live.
2: Thanks for having me back. Happy to be here.
0: So before we talk about antibiotic resistance, I wanted to just get a basic understanding about what antibiotics are and how they work. So when we take an antibiotic, what exactly is it able to combat? Bacteria or a virus?
2: So uh, most antibiotics are actually made by other bacteria. <clears throat> and they're part of the, uh, the ecosystem, part of the battle that the bacteria fight with each other. And we've been able to identify and isolate and purify and, and modify these, these chemicals. So uh, an antibiotic is basically a, a chemical, a drug that can attack bacteria. Uh, They target specific cellular functions of that uh, that organism which aren't usually present in us, and so they're not toxic to us. And because viruses aren't uh, self-replicating in the same way as bacteria are, they don't work for viruses either. So really they're just for bacteria and those kinds of infections.
0: So when we think about if we have children in school, uh, the common uh, strep infection, Mm -hmm. you can take an antibiotic for that.
2: Right, so simple penicillins, amoxicillin work well for strep and hopefully always will.
0: So let's talk about this growing problem of antibiotic resistance. Uh, the idea that there's some bacteria out there that, you know, depending on the infection, you take a certain antibiotic, it's not working. Well, what is it about that uh, bacteria that's not making it susceptible to the antibiotic?
2: So, flashing back to this battle between the bacteria in the soil and the water, it, they, they've always had the ability to resist each other's attacks. And unfortunately, when we apply pressure to our own uh, pathogens, the bacteria that are causing disease for us, uh, some of them will become resistant and they can either mutate, their their DNA mutates to uh, make new genes that can uh, avoid the drug that's attacking them, or they can pick up genes that other bacteria have already developed and so they'll acquire a whole new resistance gene, um, apparently out of thin air, but really it's not, it's always been there, we just didn't recognize it. Uh, And and so you end up um, with a population of organisms where the weak have been killed off and we're left with the stronger ones. And so it doesn't take long for resistance to develop. If you look at the history of uh, antimicrobials over the decades, uh, really over um, 100 years now, really, uh, you're looking uh, at the appearance of resistance within a few years, in many cases, of a new drug coming to market. And you know that the bacteria aren't necessarily developing a new resistance mechanism in that time frame. They're probably uh, just selecting for one that's already been there and we didn't recognize it.
0: You've been on the show before, where we talk about um, the reason, uh, one of the reasons behind why these bacteria seem to be becoming more and more of a problem. These drug-resistant bacteria, and that's due to overuse of antibiotics. So let's talk about that.
2: Yeah. So I think the the headline stuff, and actually one of the uh, the roles that I have at the Children's Hospital is I'm the co-director of antimicrobial stewardship. So one of my roles is to help protect and steward the antimicrobials into the future, and I'm telling people to use less. And 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 helping them narrow their coverage so they're not using these broad-spectrum antibiotics. Uh, They can use the narrower ones that promote less resistance. Uh, But the bottom line is uh, that is a very small percentage of the total antibiotic use. And so where's the rest of it? And uh, a lot of it's actually outside the hospital, and a lot of it's actually not even in humans. 80% of antibiotics by tonnage is used in agriculture, in farming, in farming and some of which is used not even to treat animals, but as growth promoters. And this has been uh, present um, from the 50s and 60s as an ongoing um, problem, really, of this antimicrobial exposure in the environment, uh, and we're now starting to uh, reap the, the, uh, the benefits, I want of a better word, <laughs> reap the problems as a result of that, because we're now seeing these uh, multidrug-resistant organisms uh, present in poultry, present in, uh, in in cattle, and present in uh, pigs. And they're starting to sneak into the human food chain. And we now actually have some fairly good evidence that many of the drug-resistant bacteria that we're seeing, including some of the superbugs, uh, they originated in agriculture mm-hmm. uh, through uh, antibiotics that in some cases aren't even being used in humans uh, except as drugs of last resort. So
0: let's talk about what's happening uh, on the farm when uh, livestock are given antibiotics as a preventative, but also to treat possibly if one of these animals or more gets sick. So as they're getting the antibiotics, the bacteria in them is becoming developing resistance to the antibiotic?
2: Right, so in some cases they're becoming resistant, in other cases you're just selecting for the resistant bacteria. And I don't think anyone would want to withhold an an antibiotic from an animal that's uh, sick, and if you can treat them and get them better, and the, uh, the, the FDA has, has fairly, and, and other um, uh, um, regulatory agencies, have fairly strict guidelines for what level of drugs are allowed to be present in an animal at the point of sale. Uh, and, and so I'm not too worried um, about that, although I don't like the use of antibiotics unnecessarily. The big problem that I see is the preventative use, where lower doses, uh, lower concentrations are used in, in feed because it is a growth promoter, and we've known this for decades, and for a while, there was actually a recommendation to use them in that way, and and who can blame you know farmers when you're faced with the option of uh, you know adding a small ingredient to a food product? It doesn't need a prescription. It's not for treating anything, and your animals will get fatter and and, and get fatter quicker, and so you can sell more of them um, for the same input of, of food, basically. Um, the trouble is we're now faced with these resistant organisms downstream, and you can find them on farms, you can find them uh, in the animals, and you can actually now find them in the fields where the manure is being used to fertilize the crops. So it's not, the, it's not as though we can all go vegetarian and vegan and, and avoid the problem because you have to grow the crops, and some of the uh, resistance genes are now being found in the soil, and several of the uh, drug-resistant uh, um, outbreaks of food poisoning that we've seen in the U.S. have come from salads, uh, not from meat. And uh, they've been the E. coli that are multi-drug resistant because the manure was used to fertilize the crops. Mm.
0: Dr. Nicholas Bennett is in studio with us here on Where We Live Today as we talk about, again, this, uh, this growing issue of antibiotic uh, resistance and uh, how we got to this place. Uh, Dr. Bennett is Division Head of Pediatric Infectious Disease and Immunology at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Um, you also said earlier, Dr. Bennett, um, now we do have specific links. We, so let's talk about the well, last time you were on the show, uh, there was the talk of the superbug um, that was found, I believe, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and this was a, a bag, this infection was not even um, reacting or becoming susceptible to colistin, which is one of these last resort antibiotics. So, tell us about that and, yeah. and updates on that
2: <coughs> So, uh, colistin is an interesting drug. It was around in the 60s. Um, it comes in a couple of different forms, and it has a lot of toxicities. So, there's confusion with dosing sometimes. If you use it in very sick patients, the side effects are higher. So, it really fell out of favor. Uh, because newer and more effective and and safer drugs were developed. Unfortunately, uh, these other drugs um, are are part of a a line of antimicrobials called beta-lactams, which the bacteria have got pretty good at developing resistance to. And so as we've chased our tails and developed more and more advanced beta-lactams to combat the beta-lactam resistance that we've been finding we're now faced with superbugs where the bacteria can acquire a single gene and will wipe out the entire family of, of drugs. So then we're the left using second line agents and people started uh, using colistin as your drug of last resort uh, and I've only used it literally a handful of times ever uh, to save people's lives basically where you've really had no other options. But in certain parts of the world uh, drugs like that have been used as growth promoters um, and we've seen calistin resistance um, appear across um, Asia and Europe and then into North America. And, and in the, um, around 2012, 2015, we started noticing this new gene. I'm gonna put new in air quotes. You can't see it on the other side of the radio, but new, <laughs> new gene. Uh, called MCR1, and um, it was a transmissible colistin resistance gene. And what that means is that one bacteria can carry it, but it can give that gene to another bacteria. So now you don't even need to have it within one strain. You can pass it between different species of bacteria, and the transmissible uh, resistance genes are much more problematic. It's not something that's inherent to one organism. It can be shared around. going back in time uh, looking at old isolates of colistin resistant bacteria we now know this probably originated from pigs in china in, in 2005 so 10 years really before it started becoming a problem in humans and and now it's been reported in i think in over 30 countries around the world including the united states including this lady from pennsylvania and uh, and it's a problem because if you have this mcr1 colistin resistance gene in the same bacteria which has one of these uh, carbapenemase or beta lactam resistance genes, you really are stuck, and you're left looking at a patient who may be completely untreatable with any drug we have right now.
0: You mentioned uh, when we talk about antibiotic resistance, scientists, researchers have known this is an issue. Why haven't there been changes in laws related to agriculture to reduce the amount of antibiotics that are used?
2: Well, the FDA has tried to do this since the 70s um, and without a ton of success. They have been able to restrict the usage of certain classes, uh, in, in particularly those that are very uh, important to human use like the cephalosporins, Um, But not every class and and not every drug. So you might have a drug that is not used in humans, but a similar drug is, and if you develop resistance to drug X, then you're still stuck because you get cross resistance across the entire class of drugs sometimes. Uh, So it's it's not a perfect system. A lot of it's been voluntary. There's a lot of lobbying uh, from agricultural interests, obviously, because they don't particularly want to lose access to this uh, incredible growth promoting potential. Um, and and so the, it's a lot of it's been voluntary, um, and it hasn't worked very well. So our you know we've been trying to encourage doctors to prescribe less uh, and, and educate patients to request less. Uh, but at the same time, we also want p- agriculture to change. And some of this now, the education is going to the consumer, and saying you know what what can you do to help combat this? And one of the things is look for a meat that has been produced in an antibiotic-free environment. Uh, and, and really pressure people to do that. And by changing the market, we may have more success mm-hmm. changing farming practices and doing it through legislation because we've we've kind of hit a wall there, it seems.
0: You mentioned... Um over prescribing, there's a role that doctors have uh, in this, but in other countries, so in this country, if you need an antibiotic, you need to be, get get a prescription mm-hmm. for the antibiotic, but in other countries, that's not the case.
2: That's true, uh, and particularly in some parts of uh, Asia and, and even some places uh, in South America, you can have much easier access to antimicrobials, and, and that's a problem, because um, obviously, these you know, these are powerful drugs, they work, and they save lives, there's no doubt about that. Um, So if, and and some of the uh, most problematic drugs from the resistance perspective are some of the most uh, important drugs, are some of the most um, active drugs. And so the problem is when you don't have a lot of regulation a lot of restrictions and you have overuse and the dosing might be wrong and the durations may be too long and then you end up promoting resistance. And certain resistance genes have been identified as originating from places like uh, New Delhi in India there's a New Delhi metelobeta-lactamase. Um, New Delhi scientists were not very happy to have their city <laughs> identified, but that's where it was found. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's now all over the world. So it's not, uh, you know, we're, we're a global species, and it's very easy to, to travel and transmit these resistance genes around the world now, unfortunately.
0: I started the, the show talking about how this drug-resistant strain of gonorrhea has been found in the United Kingdom. How, um, how concerning is this to you?
2: Uh, for me personally, not a problem, uh, <laughs> thankfully. No, but, Maybe I
0: should rephrase that. Yeah, but
2: professionally, yes, this is a problem. We we have s- struggled with this in the United States, primarily in California, actually. Um, but, of course, it spreads around the country, and uh, it becomes an issue because we have guidelines that are evidence-based, that are sensible, that say if someone comes in with gonorrhea, you should use drug X or drug Y, and then that's based on... Um, national data on resistance. We don't always test every single isolate for resistance, and often because of the nature of the infection, you don't get these patients back for follow-up. They may be in, they may be out of the emergency room, in and out of a clinic. Um, So you kind of have to have uh, literally one shot and done. And if you lose the ability to use some of these easy drugs, like ceftriaxone, which is a third generation cephalosporin, and, and use some of the easy oral antibiotics, then you're in big trouble. not just that the patients don't get better, which is unfortunate for them, but they can then continue to spread, mm-hmm. and they're spreading uh, drug-resistant infections. So there's a problem that leads to more problems.
0: We want to leave the listeners with um, some optimism. What's your long-term prognosis for the future of antibiotics? We, we know that this resistance has been growing.
2: Yeah, so it's, I don't know. Um, I'm hoping there's actually at least some ongoing problems because it's job security to myself, frankly. Um, That's one of my jobs is to help people deal with these resistant infections. Um, But, I mean, on a a serious note, uh, this is a a very, very real concern. And the more I've looked into the the agricultural use and the rise of uh, resistance uh, through the animals and through poultry, uh, is is that is frankly somewhat terrifying of, of of what's looming there. Um, we have had a slight increase in the last five years of new approvals of antimicrobials for the previous decade or two. Uh, there was a steady decline. Every year there was less and less new drugs approved, and we've had a slight increase in the last few years. But many of those drugs are what we call me-too drugs, where you have just an, an, a new iteration of an existing class. So they're not that great, they're, they're not a whole new a paradigm shift, um, but we, we need research really to do that. Um, we need to research new agents, we need to research new approaches, um, and, you know, that's where I think some of this uh, exciting research with phage therapy comes in, because that's a whole new paradigm shift, and, and that's probably what we do need to get over this uh, problem is as a whole new approach that doesn't rely on chasing our tails and developing new drugs where there's a resistance gene already hiding in a cave somewhere that we know nothing about.
0: You mentioned phage therapy. That's what we're going to be hitting on next. I want to thank uh, Dr. Nicholas Bennett again, Division Head of Pediatric Infectious Disease and Immunology at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Always good to talk with you.
2: Thanks. Thanks. for having me back.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshil. After the break, we're going to hear about a Connecticut man who would have died from a drug-resistant infection until his doctor and a team of researchers at Yale used a treatment commonly used back in the former Soviet Union. Phage therapy saved this Connecticut man's life. We're going to learn more coming up, and you can join the conversation, too, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Earlier, we were learning about the growing problem of antibiotic resistance and why some infections caused by bacteria do not respond to antibiotics. Now, there's an alternate therapy that may be able to take on these superbugs. It's known as phage therapy, and it helped a Connecticut man back in 2016 who developed a drug-resistant infection after having heart surgery. To tell us more about phage therapy and how it all works, my next guests are joining us from Connecticut Public Radio's New Haven studio Uh, On with us now is Dr. Paul Turner, Dean of Science and Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale. Uh, Dr. Turner, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thank you for having us.
0: And then also with you is Dr. Benjamin Chan, Associate Research Scientist in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale, uh, who works in uh, Paul Turner's lab. Uh, Dr. Chan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: So I wanted to start with you, Paul, um, if you could tell us more about uh, phage therapy, and I guess we'll go back to the basics, the differences between bacteria, again, and viruses, and how phage therapy can combat these drug-resistant bacteria.
3: Sure. (laughs) So I guess the good place to start is uh, what is a phage, anyway. And your listeners may be very familiar with uh, viruses, but they may not know exactly what they are. It's easier to define them as what they're not. So there's all sorts of cellular species on the planet, like us, as well as single-celled species like bacteria. But the world is full of viruses as well. And these are basically nucleic acid, so DNA or RNA wrapped up in protein. And uh, what viruses do is that they infect cells and replicate in them. So a phage is the short term for a bacteriophage, that's a full name, that's a virus that infects strictly bacteria.
0: Uh, I understand that bacteriophage is also, you could look at it and think of it as bacteria eater.
3: That's right, that's exactly what the types of uh, phages that we study could be defined as, uh, and that is because they literally destroy cells, bacterial cells when they infect them. So this can be extremely efficient and fast. It could be as little as say 20 minutes to an hour by the time a particle of a bacteriophage gets in a cell and takes over the cellular machinery to make copies of viruses and then it'll kill it afterwards.
0: We were talking about learning about um, uh, alternate uh, treatments or therapies to deal with these drug-resistant bacteria, and that's why we wanted to uh, tell our listeners about phage therapy. But this is not something new, Paul. This is back from the, the former Soviet Union. They used phage therapy to deal with infections?
3: Yes. So phages were discovered over 100 years ago, and actually not long after they were discovered, uh, including by uh, Felix Durrell, who did some of his work at Yale University. Uh, Experimenters tried taking these phages and using them to kill bacterial infections and things like chickens. Uh, Chickens suffer from a form of cholera, and you could treat chickens with bacteriophages that kill this cholera bacterium. And uh, basically not long after that, in the uh, Soviet Union and other Eastern Bloc countries, people were using phages as a way to treat bacterial infections in humans. And that never quite caught on in the United States and other Western countries. And instead, we invested in antibiotics.
0: Uh, You said it never quite caught on. Is that because they just didn't know how effective it was or because the money is in uh, developing antibiotics?
3: Well, it's a good question and sort of a deep history and a bit of a mystery why it never caught on. Uh, I think eventually it was recognized as kind of Soviet technology, and maybe uh, purposefully, places like the USA wanted to shun it as a possibility. But you know, we in the Western world, we were very enamored of Fleming's discovery of penicillin and the immediate use of uh, chemical antibiotics as drugs. And they're very, you know, you can characterize a drug like a chemical and you can sort of wrap your mind around it, whereas, I guess I could say in the former Soviet Union and other countries, phages, these were taken directly from natural environments and they did work in people, they didn't always get very scrutinized or characterized and that was seen as, oh, you know, not a great idea in the eyes of Western physicians. So. There were lots of reasons why it never caught on, but it's certainly an idea that is being revisited now because we've run out of other options.
0: I want to turn to your colleague uh, there with you again, Dr. Benjamin Chan. I mentioned that uh, phage therapy helped save the life of a Connecticut man back in 2016. You and Paul Turner uh, were co-authors in a paper published in the journal Evolution, Medicine and Public Health about how phage therapy helped this man who had a severe heart infection. Ben, can you tell us a a little bit about him and how phage therapy worked for him?
1: Sure. Um, So he... um, this man had a an aortic arch replacement surgery in uh, 2014 I believe and so this is like the big artery coming out of the heart they replace it with a piece of Dacron um, because of an aneurysm and uh, you know after the surgery he developed an infection on that uh, piece of Dacron and sort of they, they opened him up to irrigate the wound and clear, try to clear it out, but they were you know after a few times of being hospitalized, it was, they were unsuccessful in eradicating the infection. Um, and so they, you know, he was on antibiotics for a couple of years um, to prevent it from getting worse, but it wasn't getting rid of the infection. And that at the point where we stepped into the um, situation was um, it was antibiotic resistant. Um, and so we started working with bacteriophages to try and develop a treatment for him.
0: So both of you um, are not medical doctors. So how did you get connected with this patient when you when he ha- he developed this uh, again this uh, drug resistant infection caused by a particular bacteria?
1: Sure. So I we got put into contact with the surgeon who's also on the paper, um, Dr. Deepak Narayan, um, through some other connections, sort of randomly, um, and he. he I was in a meeting with him, and he said that he had a case that might fit the criteria for phage therapy. Um, And from there, it was basically just, you know, I asked him to get a sample of the bacteria um, and then tested it on our phage library and found some good matches.
0: You mentioned phage library. So explain that to our listeners, what we're talking about, and how you find these particular, again, viruses or bacteriophages that will then attack uh, these drug-resistant bacteria. Where do sure. you find them?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we find them wherever there are bacteria. So um, in, in the case um, of this heart infection, it was with a bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a very common bacteria um, all over in many environments. Um, but for other bacteria, we just basically go collect um, usually water or sewage um, that, that we suspect contains the bacteria we're looking for. And when there's bacteria we're looking for, you'll find bacteriophages that can infect them. And so we get them from all over the world, um, all over you know, Connecticut. Um, and we just uh, collect phages from these samples, try to characterize them, um, and then add them to our library.
0: So this uh, particular bacterial phage used on this Connecticut man actually came from a Connecticut lake?
1: Uh, correct. Came from Dodge Pond in Lyme, Connecticut.
0: So how much of your time, Ben, do you spend phage fishing, so to speak? <laughs>
1: Uh, I spend maybe a fourth of my time um, collecting water samples um, and, and sifting through them.
0: Uh, again, this is where we live. Today, we're learning about an alternate therapy, uh, a treatment to help deal with drug-resistant infections, these superbugs that um, are appearing more and more as we are learning about antibiotic resistance becoming a, a more of an issue. Uh, with us from Connecticut Public Radio's studios in New Haven, uh, Dr. Benjamin Chan, Associate Research Scientist in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University, and Dr. Paul Turner, Dean of Science and Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale. Uh, both of them, as well as another uh, co-author, uh, recently published uh, uh, this case where bacteriophages were able to help a Connecticut man who developed a drug-resistant infection. I wanted to go back to you, Paul. Um, Both of you are evolutionary biologists, so um, explain a little bit more about how this particular uh, virus, again, can help uh, combat a a drug-resistant bacteria. It's not only about I guess, eating them, so to speak, but how, they're, how you're looking at the evolutionary biology of that particular, um, that bi- bi- evolutionary bi- biology of that particular bacteria.
3: Yes, uh, I'd say we took an evolution thinking approach to this problem, and by that I mean historically, lots of people have been successful in finding phage candidates to uh, kill a target bacterium, but as we heard about earlier in the show, the evolution of antibiotic resistance is very widespread in bacteria, and it's also known that the evolution of phage resistance happens very easily in bacteria. So from the very start, we considered, okay, if we find a candidate, can we learn enough about it in the way that it's attacking bacteria so that when the bacteria inevitably evolve resistance to the phage, can it somehow create a better biomedical outcome? And Uh, The short story would be this phage that we found in Dodge Pond attaches to proteins on Pseudomonas aeruginosa in a way that had not been shown before, and these proteins are important for that bacterium to pump antibiotics out of its cell. So what we predicted is that if the phages attack the bacteria in this way, the primary way the bacteria will respond with evolution of phage resistance is to... Uh, have some change in their ability to pump out antibiotics and to maybe even make them sensitive to antibiotics, whereas they previously had been resistant. And that's exactly what we found and published on and what helped this uh, individual who we first treated.
0: So uh, Ben, take us back to uh, when these bacteriophages were uh, put into the chest of this particular Connecticut man. Uh, walk us through that process and uh, the outcome again. he The infection ended up being treated later with an antibiotic that before it was showing resistance to.
1: Sure. So back in January 2016, um, he came to Yale New Haven Hospital and this is where we were applying the bacteriophages. So, you know, a couple weeks before that, I had been preparing um, the phages for this treatment um, and cleaning them up. And I walked them over and we, the plan was to go and apply bacteriophage plus one of these antibiotics that it was becoming resistant to um, in the, the end of this draining fistula that had formed. So he had uh, basically a little hole that had formed um, to the outside world that was draining um, you know, bacteria, um, and so we took the phage plus the antibiotic mixed together, um, and we applied it just at the very end of that um, hole, so that we, with the hope that it would, you know, get down into the infected area, um, we covered him up, and then we released him, and we heard, you know, six weeks or so later, um, after sort of a, an infect, uh, sorry, an incident that was sort of independent of, of the phage, um, but he had to have a medical check. And at that time, he was totally clear of Pseudomonas infection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it took how less
2: did it, than
0: that. How did it feel at that moment when you when you learned that? So you're taking the work that you're doing in a lab and applying it in this way that saved this man's life.
1: It's really the best. It's <laughs> it's kind of, the, in my opinion, but I'm a little biased, <laughs> the coolest job in the world, right? Because we get to take stuff from... The environment, and we get to you know walk it all the way up through development into a person, and I think that's a really uh, rare opportunity in research to follow something all the way from you know environment to bench to bedside, and so I think it's the best.
0: Uh, I wanted to go back to again Paul Turner, who's with you, Dean of Science and Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale. Uh, we're talking about this again uh, because of the larger issue of antibiotic resistance. Uh, with phage therapy, I mean, you guys are doing your research at Yale. I mean, how common is this becoming more and more um, of something that researchers are focusing on in this country? And when did that begin?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. It is increasingly popular to look at alternatives to uh, traditional antibiotic therapy, including phage therapy. Uh, Now, I should say decades ago, people had been doing mouse experiments and other very controlled and rigorous studies to see how well this would work. But Frankly, we didn't have as many problems back then, so there wasn't as much time and energy. I should say, as many problems with antibiotic resistance spread in bacteria, which is just exponentially rising. So, uh, my point is that back then there were some studies in the 70s and 80s, but not very much of it in the USA. I would say now that our work is published and uh, people know of other researchers where these kinds of um, uh, emergency treatments are approved by the FDA and happening. It's, it's definitely an increasingly popular idea. What I love about it is what Ben mentioned, is that it takes you quickly from basic research to actually helping people in a kind of astronomically fast way that I didn't predict. But uh, what we need is more research to see how, how uh, useful it is in general, how broadly useful is this approach. So, Ideally, the federal agencies, especially national uh, institutes of health, will start to get behind this idea a bit more now that our study and others are being published because we really need to have more research funding go into this area to see just how widespread and useful it could be.
0: Now that this particular case, again, um, has gotten publicity, are other people contacting you about who may they may know someone that has a life threatening infection or someone who may be close to death and this might be something that um, is allowable to try on them?
3: Oh, yes. We get people, I should say, uh, giving credit to Ben. He, he gets more of these contacts than I do because he's been the first author on our studies. And um, I think he can talk a bit about uh, a young woman in Texas with cystic fibrosis, if we could tell you about that case study very briefly.
0: Sure. Ben Chan.
3: Sure. So
1: like Paul was saying, we do get contacted um Rather frequently, um, since things get publicity, um, we get contacted a lot by, you know, individuals whose family members or or themselves who are infected with some antibiotic resistant bacteria or often the case physicians who have a patient that is in need. Um, And that's exactly what happened uh, last year. Um, We were contacted by a physician who had a patient with cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic condition. Um, that sort of predisposes them to having these chronic infections um, by Pseudomonas aeruginosa, especially. And she contacted us with this, this young woman who had this infection that was um, drug-resistant um, and asked if we could maybe think about phage therapy for her. Um, and, you know, by the time we um, were involved in the case, her strains that, that we collected were um, resistant to all available antibiotics. Um, and so she really had no therapeutic alternatives. Um, and so we contacted the FDA and, and proposed using phage therapy, um, and, and they they approved it, of course. Um, and so we started phage therapy last December, um, and she just you know inhaled bacteriophage um, through her nebulizer, and you know within ten days, she had this really um, amazing switch in the microbiome of her lung to the pseudomonas now being totally drug sensitive. Um, and so now she has a whole panel of, you know, antibiotics, which previously did not work, um, that she could use um, if necessary. Um, and we've also got, you know, hundreds of phage that we could use as a backup mm-hmm. for those backups. So I think it worked out really well in her case. Um, and, and, but like Paul said, we really need to get um, out there and do like, you know, rigorous clinical trials and, and see if this is really... Um, something that we could use in, in medicine here.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Alpthanchil. Today, we're learning about a technique researchers are studying and and are applying now that may help the global issue of antibiotic resistance. Uh, the treatment is called phage therapy. And my guests today are Dr. Paul Turner, Dean of Science and Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University, and Dr. Benjamin Chan, Associate Research Scientist in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to learn after when we come back a little bit about why um, there has been. Uh, hesitancy to these uh, highly uh, controlled, randomized uh, clinical trials, and if that will be changing. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up Monday, when it comes to the nation's opioid crisis, substance abuse affects more than just the addict. On the next Where We Live, how does addiction affect children and families? Multiple states have reported more kids are entering the foster care system each year because of addiction in the home. And we're going to hear about a unique approach here in Connecticut that treats parents for addiction while keeping children with their families. Again, that's coming up Monday. Now, today we've been talking about antibiotic resistance. There are alternate therapies to help target these superbugs or bacteria that's become drug-resistant to antibiotics. We've been learning about phage therapy with Dr. Paul Turner, Dean of Science and Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale. Also, Dr. Benjamin Chan, Associate Research Scientist, also at that lab at Yale. And you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, ben, you mentioned before the break there's other applications uh, to help um, individuals uh, with these drug-resistant uh, infections. We learned about the case of the Connecticut man after having heart surgery developing this uh, particular infection. You mentioned this woman in Texas that had cystic fibrosis. Uh, for our listeners, um, maybe it's they can't wrap their minds around this idea. And I, I guess it's uh, when we think about viruses that can cause diseases in humans and then turning around and injecting viruses into the body to combat infection. I mean, that's kind of that's not something that we hear about often. Are there any dangers to humans by doing this?
1: Uh, so, as far as we know, uh, no, there are not. Um, so, I think maybe part of the problem is that they all get grouped together, right? So, viruses. Um, you know, there's, there's many types of viruses, right? So, there's viruses that infect humans, which we all know about, you know, influenza, Ebola, whatever. Um, but there's also you know different types of viruses and bacteriophages are known only to infect bacteria Um, and the ones that we use are very very narrow spectrum and in fact you know often only one species or you know a few sub a small subset of that species can be infected by these bacteriophages and so there's as far as we can tell little to no risk of using them in, in people
0: uh, Paul, I'll go back to you when we were learning a little bit more about antibiotics earlier. We know that uh, antibiotics can treat a variety uh, of diseases or illnesses, but um, just to uh, piggyback on what Ben was saying, it's particular bacteriophages or viruses uh, that can uh, target particular uh, bacteria. So it's not like a one phage can hit a bunch of different types.
3: That's right. So. Um the, the good news about phage therapy is that it is specific enough that if you have your target bacterial pathogen, and, uh, you know, it's a big, abundant world and biodiverse world of phages out there, you can probably find abundant types of phages that will infect that target bacterium. Uh, and the, the thing is, you don't want to be too specific with it. Otherwise, your drug that you're developing, your phage as a drug, you know, it won't be broadly useful. Mm-hmm. So what I have liked about our work so far is that we build these large libraries or collections of phages, and it is possible to find phages that are pretty capable of infecting a wide variety of strains of a bacterial pathogen. And our work shows that, yes, specificity is on our side in terms of we can find these phages that won't do any harm to humans, but it is also possible that you can find something that's broad enough that you could use it against a variety of strains of that bacterial pathogen. So thats it's not quite rewriting the textbooks on this, but I think that there's been this broad assumption that phages are so narrowly specific that they'll never very useful like a broad-spectrum antibiotic and I would say it's something in between and that our work mm-hmm. shows that there is some very good news about this approach.
0: So Paul let's talk more about again this need to have more uh, clinical trials and why that has appeared to be sluggish. Uh, how does the US government uh, uh, approach this uh, through the FDA and um, do you get, are you getting enough grants to continue to study this here?
3: Great question. So uh, the audience should know that clinical trials are very, very expensive. You know, you're talking millions of dollars get devoted to these and justifiably so. You, know, you have to be very careful about who you enroll. You have to use very rigorous controls. You have to uh, make sure everybody's safe and you, know, you want to have a, a broad collection of people who are examined, so you know in your clinical trial how broadly useful it is. So the bottom line is that this is very, very expensive stuff. It is not at all trivial to fund a clinical trial. So I would say the expense is something that holds back uh, this approach. And the other is that there's a low expectation of success for phage therapy because we have not invested in it much in this country, so we don't know that much about it. And that makes the funders of this type of clinical trial kind of conservatively uh, expecting that it wouldn't work. And that does touch on what we just talked about is the specificity, this assumption that, okay, you use a phage in a clinical trial, but phages are so specific they're not going to be that useful. And again, our work suggests that, no, that that can be the case. So really to answer your question, the FDA, I think, is very enamored of this idea as a possibility, and they have been supportive of our approaches. So it's more about uh, getting the funding and the grant funding to do it. And uh, we're trying our best and work with physician collaborators and other researchers to try and move it forward that way.
0: Uh, you mentioned the FDA, but they're only permitting uh, that this phage therapy be used on last resort patients, people near uh, death because nothing else is working. Uh, that is that frustrating? And can that be changed?
3: That could be changed if the phage that we use or other phages are uh, studied intensively as investigational new drugs Mm -hmm. that would be with uh, FDA approval to ultimately move into a new class of drugs that are approved by the FDA for use in people. So uh, Ben and I can continue to help individuals through what you call a compassionate care approach, Mm -hmm. looking at their bacteria in our laboratory, finding phages that are good candidates to overcome those bacteria if used in treatment. But what you're saying is very true. To get the broadest approval possible, you have to get drug status for a phage. And this is brand new territory in the United States as far as we know.
0: And Ben, I mentioned pharmaceutical companies earlier. Is there interest in uh, this uh, phage therapy? Um, We often, we think about pharmaceutical companies, uh, we think that they're looking at the bottom line and how much uh, profitability there is in what they're developing. Um, I'm just curious what some of the drawbacks for them would be um, in um, trying to research more into phage, uh, phage therapy.
1: Sure. So I think uh, one of the issues that big and medium pharmaceutical companies have with phage therapy is that it's very difficult to get intellectual property around it mm-hmm. um, to sort of increase the value of the company um, because you know viruses are, are, are living and natural things, and so it's it's difficult to get intellectual property. Um, and there's also, uh, like you mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, uh, very slow development of, of antimicrobials, um, in part because return on investment is very low, um, especially for some of these acute infections. And so it, part of it's profit, part of it's intellectual property, um, a- and part of it's just because it's new, right? Um, and so I think as things change, um, it, it could very quickly end up in, in medium to large pharma um if if things keep going the way they're going. Mm -hmm.
0: What would this look like on a a bigger scale versus uh, going out to uh, a Connecticut lake to find a particular phage?
1: Sure. So, I mean, we could continue looking around for all these uh, natural variants of bacteriophages, or, you know, we could start um, engineering them. um, And perhaps, you know, as technology progresses a bit, we could start designing them, you know, specifically the way we want them. And I think that would be a great approach, um, but we're not quite there. But we're getting close um, technologically. Um, and once, once we can do that, I think it'll be a really quickly moving into the pharmaceutical industry.
0: And is it important to clarify that this is not replacing antibiotics?
3: Yeah. What I love about the particular therapy approach that we use is that you've got a phage that's used alongside mm-hmm. an already approved antibiotic but that antibiotic is useless. So that's called adjuvant therapy. So what we've found is that you use this phage against bacteria that are resistant to that antibiotic, and as you deploy the treatment, the phage kill the bacteria, and these mutants that are resistant to the phage have a liability in that they've switched to antibiotic sensitivity. So you've got this two-edged sword, and uh, frankly, the FDA loves that mm-hmm. because in a way you are – Kind of uh, reinvigorating the existing antibiotic arsenal that we have that's quickly being outdated, and now we're trying to have it be useful again to physicians.
0: I wanted to go back to Ben uh, real uh, quickly before we end the show. You know, we talked about the importance of of uh, clinical trials here. What's happening abroad in specific countries with phage therapy? Uh, how ahead of are they on this than the U.S.? Uh,
1: well, I think. At the same level of rigor and investigation we're, we're pretty close there's a, there's a couple of trials going on in the European Union right now um, with sort of the same level of, of scientific rigor that we would put use here um, and so they're ahead yes um, but we're you know catching up and I think that we could do it if we just had you know backing and willingness
0: uh, I should mention again that uh, both uh, Ben Chan and Dr. Paul Turner, as well as uh, the other doctor of the, uh, the Connecticut man back in 2016, uh, remind me of his name again?
1: Deepak Narayan?
0: Uh, you all were co-authors of a paper published in the journal Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health about how uh, particular phage therapy helped this uh, this Connecticut man who had a severe heart infection. Uh, we should note that he did uh, pass away recently, uh, not related uh, to what he was being treated for in 2016?
3: Yes. Yeah, so he, he actually was in pretty frail health by the time we helped him out from uh, this long-lasting bacterial infection that he had and he, he was elderly so he was I, we met him we had the pleasure of meeting and talking with him and he was so grateful for uh, what well, we were grateful to him for volunteering but he was very grateful that the therapy phage therapy worked for him but uh, but yes he he was not a very healthy individual and it turned out that his further heart Uh, problems uh, caused him to pass away about a month ago, ironically, on the very same day that the case study was published.
0: I want to thank Dr. Paul Turner, Dean of Science and Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Also, Dr. Ben Chan, Associate Research Scientist in in Paul Turner's lab, uh, both at Yale University. Um, This is an exciting time for you.
3: Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you for having us on.
0: Um, keep, please keep us posted on, uh, on any a few further news on these clinical trials that hopefully we'll be getting soon. But we do appreciate your time explaining this to us today.
3: All right. Thank you, Lucy.
0: They both joined us from Connecticut Public Radio's New Haven studio at Gateway Community College. Uh, Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kayone Wolf. You can learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. As always, thanks for listening.